out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastorm. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of Benita Joshi, who I spoke to very recently to find out about life, love and poetry, and also her life in music. She now goes or runs a record label titled Rocket Girl. This was from 1997, which is a very interesting uh, independent label which has got an amazing array of brilliant bands and it's got a release coming out very soon autumn 2023 AR Kane but has got an amazing back catalog which we will talk about but in the early 90s um, helped set up Cherie Records and also Shea Records as well but you'll hear all that story in this interview so um, yes let's just get on with it so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years Vanita it's over to you I mean there's a few bands really it's a very strange story but um, my brother went to his barbers or hairdressers and for some reason the hairdresser was selling a cassette radio player which is quite ridiculous I don't know why he was selling it it was just you know a little cassette it had one cassette player and it was a radio and you could record the radio onto the cassette so I just used to lie in bed at night and I'd be turning the dial you know trying to find radio stations and one big issue that I found with this amazing new device that I had was if I pressed play and record I wouldn't be able to hear the music simultaneously so it would be recording the track but I would never know when the track finished. So the only way to know if the track finished was there was this little switch at the side. And if I put the switch up, the music blared out really loud. And if I put the switch down, I couldn't hear anything. So I'd be recording something. I remember recording The Smiths, Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now. And I really wanted to play it again, you know, listen to it properly. But because it was recording, I couldn't hear it. So I kept flicking the little button up to see if the song was still going and then flick it down again. Of course, I could have left it recording for 10 minutes and then stopped it. But I was so fanatical about music, I wanted to finish it, you know, at the end of the song, ideally before any DJ would talk. Yes. But then leave it in the position so I could record something else. So the tape was always cued, ready to record the next great track that I heard on the radio. So... I think in those days, yeah, so the Smiths' early singles, and then I was quite into a lot of the early 80s, more electronic bands. Tears for Fears had a massive impact on not just my musical interest, but my life, really, because when I liked a band, I was quite obsessive, I suppose. So, you know, you used to buy the vinyl, so the hurting and you'd have the track listing on the back and you'd know the A side, the B side. You'd learn so much about the band, who produced it, who did the artwork and reading interviews and listening to radio sessions. And I was the same with VHS tapes. I'd have them primed, ready to record, you know, a band on top of the pops or the chart show or the old grey whistle test, whatever was on back then. And And so I looked up Tears for Fears, you know, I must have read about them. And it wasn't like you could go on the internet and Google Tears for Fears, but it was quite well known that the name had come from 
a Dr Arthur Janov book. So I went to Rugby Library where I grew up in rugby and they actually had Dr Arthur Janov's Prisoners of Pain and Primal Scream. So here I was as a teenager reading books that were nothing to do with anything I knew about music. So it took me on this path where I got interested in, I guess, psychology and later not really knowing that the word for it was philosophy and, you know, all this teenage angst was kind of in a lot of these songs, especially the Smiths and Tears for Fears. And then I started listening to OMD, Depeche Mode, Soft Cell, all that kind of 80s keyboard, electronic, but also dipping, probably dipping into things like Joy Division, I knew Love Will Tear Us Apart because that was played quite a lot, but it's probably yes. a little bit before my time. And then I got a Joy Division book for Christmas. So I would just discover these bands by listening to the radio back then. And Caroline, Radio Caroline was great. I remember hearing interviews with Matt Johnson from The The and Nick Cave. And I probably didn't know these people that well mm. because I was quite young. But it was really interesting to listen to these interviews from, you know, bands that I didn't know much about. But I think Radio Caroline really had a massive influence on just finding new bands and new artists, really. Yes, absolutely. Were your parents at all musical? Did they give you much of a direction in life or have any cultural sort of moment that helped on your way? Not at all, really. Um, I mean... They listened to a lot of religious chants and a lot of film music because in India, film music was massive. Um, I think it kind of happened here with films like Saturday Night Fever and Grease, where the soundtracks yes. were really well known. But in India, there was this whole scene where a lot of the music came from films. So my dad used to love watching Indian films. So I remember being surrounded by big hit songs from maybe Indian movies from the 60s and things like that. But other than that, they weren't massively into music. And I don't think they really understood my passion for music. Or I don't think they could really understand why I had this deep interest in, in music, because a lot of people, you know, they get influenced by their siblings. And I've got an older brother, and I guess he really liked Adamant and Blondie. And I'm trying to think what else he listened to. Um, we used to argue over recording stuff off the top 40. We had right. an old, you know, the old radiograms, yes. the big lift off lid. We had one of those. My parents had an extension built that was supposed to be our playroom, but it just turned into a room where the TV was and this big stereogram. So we would have a cassette player and used to have to hold down the rewind button, you know, to rewind it. The button didn't stay down or hold down the fast forward button and we would record directly from this big stereogram so we'd put the cassette player in front of the speaker and record whatever songs we liked off the top 40 rundown so he might want to record one song and then I'd want to record another and if he was recording something he'd be Shh, I'm recording something and if I was recording something he'd tell me to be quiet and then we've got cassettes where where you can hear us going Shh, and you know I'm recording and things like this 
and then one day my dad came home from work and he had this magic wire and it was called the silencer and it was a gray lead that plugged into the back of the stereogram and then went into the back of the cassette player so we could record and speak at the same time and it wouldn't record our voices so this was a magic piece of equipment for us yes that was massive wasn't it really do you remember that the the channel four on a friday evening afternoon the tube because that was also one that i remember getting the vhs tape and sort of getting very excited with sort of recording little bits and then trying to sort of label the little tape, you know, these tapes to sort of remember where bits were to re-watch them again and again. That was always yeah, a big... Yeah, the tube was great and it was three hours, wasn't it? I mean, there was a lot of music on there. Yes, and odd comedians and odd little sort of theatre bits and stuff like that, which was, it was stunning, really. We were so lucky to have that. So what was your first album or single you bought? You know what? I I mean, I remember buying Tears for Fears, The Hurting. Um, I'm wondering if that was the first record I bought. Um, Seven Inch. I mean, we had quite a few just um, in the old stereogram. So I don't know if I bought it or my brother bought it, but we had some really random seven inches. Um, but I'm trying to think of something specific, um, like a first seven inch, but I don't really have that you know, saving up and going out and buying a seven inch. It was more with the albums yes. as I got a bit older. But we definitely had a big pile of seven inches and random singles that maybe my, my dad had bought or my parents had bought us. Or I remember Big Chief Heartbreak was one single we had. And um, January, do you remember that song, January? Was it one of those yeah, soft pop? Would you be able to sing it for me? <laughs> is I that the one that really just goes about january yeah january yeah that's the yes that's the song i don't know who it was but it, it's ensconced in my brain because it was probably on the school bus every morning when we used to listen to mike reed and his program so um, oh, yes, yeah those little but, but we did have a bunch of sort of oldie seven inches that um I don't know. They just remind me of being a kid, but just really random. They weren't really things we'd brought. I don't even know where they came from, to be honest. But we still got them. Little Donkey, Beverly Sisters. Yes. I remember, you know, that at Christmas. And the Wombles, a Womble Whoa. seven inch. And the edge of it was broken. Like it didn't affect playing it, but it was just a tiny bit was missing from it. Yes, dear old Orinoco. So what was your first gig you went to? Um, first big gig was Depeche Mode at the NEC. So it was the Black Celebration Tour, right. 1985. Blimey. And what was your first little gig then you went to? It was probably something like Spaceman 3, growing up in rugby. So, or the Cogs of Time, or maybe they played together. I think Cogs of Time might have supported Spaceman 3. Yes. But I saw them quite a lot around rugby. Nice. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Sonic boom. <laughs> it must have been quite exciting, actually. But then, yeah, so when you got to 16, did you leave school or did you stay on for A-levels and then progress to a university degree? No, I stayed on for A-levels. And then that year when I was waiting for the results, I, I'd i been writing to a lot of bands. So coming to sort of mid-80s, I didn't really have a lot of friends that were into music. I felt quite isolated. I mean, I didn't realise it at the time, but 
I think music became my best friend. I was sitting in my bedroom with my headphones on, listening to records, listening to the radio. And I just wrote to everybody. And there was a massive fanzine scene at the time. So I would order all these music fanzines, 50 pence, you know, um, or buy them at little gigs if they were around. Or I'd read somehow that, you know, Spaceman 3 were in a fanzine or and then I started writing to record labels saying, you know, I really like this band on your label, really small labels. Yes. And I heard the sea urchins on the radio. I must have heard them on the radio or I heard it on a, a mix cassette. Actually, there was a fanzine in Norwich called So Naive Fanzine. And there was a guy called Mike. And he made me this amazing cassette, which I've still got. Excellent. And he, there was a crayon drawing on the front in orange and yellow of sunshine. And there were all these C86 bands on there. And I started writing to the sea urchins and I'd go and see them. And I was writing to Sarah Records and they'd send me letters back like this is our new release and buy it so that we don't starve and so forth and <laughs> um and I remember buying 14 ice bears that pink and white stripy paper bag seven inch yes. and writing to the groove farm and um thrilled skinny and I'm trying to think who wrote back to me um but I wrote a lot of letters and I would go to school I'd come home from school and just write letters. I would spend my lunchtime writing letters. And I don't actually know what I wrote about because these letters were huge. There were four or five A4 pages. Fantastic. So I've no idea what I would write about, but I used to make mixtapes for other people. Yes. And I would record the Spaceman 3 tracks that I had saying... There's a local band, you're going to love them. They're called Spaceman 3. And so we were swapping tapes, me and all the fanzine writers. And so when I finished um, O levels and then A levels, I actually went on tour with the sea urchins in Scotland. So it was the summer of 88, I think. Yeah, because I moved to London that year. So it must have been the summer of 88. And they were supposed to play Glasgow, Dundee, uh, I think Edinburgh. And basically, we went in two cars. So the band, me, my friend, and Mark, who I'm still in touch with, who was Jamie's roommate or flatmate in Birmingham. So I told my parents I was youth hosteling around <laughs> Scotland with my friend and she wasn't happy at all. Yes. But all this time I've been planning. I didn't know what sounded worse. Is it worse to say I'm going on the road with a band or is it worse to say I'm youth hosteling around Scotland? So me and my friend Susan, we packed our bags and we got the train to Birmingham and met the band and offered to drive as well I'd passed my driving test so um I'd offered to drive them and in the end we went in convoy between two cars and it was a crazy trip because I remember being in Kelvin Bridge and we were staying with um a couple of bands that were in Scotland the Orchids oh yes and I think remember fun and so we split up and stayed 
in different places. And I remember Robert's guitar got stolen outside the place we were staying at in Kelvin Bridge. And that was awful. I mean, it was just a horrible, horrible start to the tour. Um, I remember we just watched loads of episodes of The Monkees when we were staying there. Yes. And I remember we were on at some service station and it was the middle of the night. We must have been between two towns and we went to, you know, a, a station um, maybe to get some petrol, maybe to get a snack. And somehow the keys got locked in the car, in one of the cars. So we ha- I think I, I think we spent the night at the service station waiting for someone to come and help us get the keys, the key Blimey. out of the car. So I just remember there was a lot of crazy incidents. One of the gigs was supposed to be on the beach and it got cancelled because it was raining. Um, I mean, some of the gigs did happen and, of course, they're amazing. I was just such a massive fan. I mean, they couldn't do wrong in my in my books anyway. Yes, absolutely. This is this is great. I mean, it's it's hardly Led Zeppelin. Those kind of prog, you know, those massive gigs of the seventies, isn't it? With the glam world, this is this is like the <laughs> indie equivalent, isn't it? Which is like you know, service station, lost keys, and stolen guitars. It's you, you know, it's quite different to the plant and page period, wasn't it? Where they were rock gods, so to speak. Yeah, but these were rock gods in the indie world, you know. Well, absolutely. 14 Ice Bears, Sea Urchins, all those bands were great, you know, and uh, little did they know at the time, they were just, as they were shuffling around. Yeah, I've done some amazing, you know, like gigs, uh, interviews with people who talked about, it was a band loop. They said, you know, when they were doing one of their last tours before they broke up, they said, you know, they were sort of, they had plastic bags, you know, around their feet because they didn't have shoes or something like that. They were so broke. And it's like, I can't hardly believe it now. But, you know, it was like, you know, they were just like, we just couldn't eat another ter- terrible sandwich and have another terrible night's sleep. We just gave up in the end. And that was they the end. They played in rugby, actually, at Easter Everywhere, which I think, gosh, I can't remember which Easter it was. I think it was Easter 86, maybe, or right. 87. Um, the Ben Hall in rugby, it was Spaceman 3, Loop. Um, lots of local bands were playing. And, yeah, I joined the Loop fan club as well because I've got these badges, Soundhead, I think it was called, and there was a Soundheads badge and maybe a Loop badge as well. Yes. And um, I saw them play quite a lot. And when Spaceman 3 played at Dingwalls, in January 89, I was going around selling loop flexes and Spaceman 3, they were saying to me, can't believe you're selling a loop flexi at a Spaceman 3 show, which I guess was a bit cheeky, really, but it was a similar fan base. Yes, yes, they were, they were, you know. Yeah, very similar in some, a lot of ways. So you, did you sort of then veer from your sort of, your sort of 80s early period of, you know, more electronic sounds to the, embrace the indie world of, you know, jangly guitars and sort of, you know, sort of pasty kids? Yeah, so I think from that indie 80s electronic sort of, you know, things that were in the top 40 and the charts, but still not maybe mainstream, mainstream, you know, I wasn't listening to hit records, really, even though OMD, Depeche Mode, Soft Cell had hits. They weren't kind of what everybody's listening to. It's kind of still the alternative 80s, I guess. Yes. And then when I dis- 
discovered all the fanzines. I got really into all the jingly jangly stuff, early Primal Scream and My Bloody Valentine, the first early records. And through Spaceman 3, I guess I discovered this whole other world because I started getting really into all the 60s music because Spaceman 3 were influenced by a lot of 60s music, as were the sea urchins. You know, they were massive fans of Neil Young and Buffalo Springfield and Nick Drake and Kaleidoscope and, you know, a lot of bands that I guess were not that well known then. I mean, certainly Nick Drake wasn't so well known at that time. And I think bands like 13th Floor Elevators, probably because Primal Scream had spoken about them in interviews. So basically, I think I latched on to all the influences of the bands I liked and then their influences. And I was a massive fan of Suicide and Velvet Underground. Yes. Uh, I do remember driving around rugby listening to Frankie Teardrop with my <clears throat> cassette deck with Frankie Teardrop turned up really loud and the windows down and thinking I was really cool when all that screaming was going on in the track, you know. Um, I did go through a goth phase as well. Excellent. Well, goth, really you know. <clears throat> Sisters of Mercy, Bauhaus, um, The Mission the Bolshoi, who I used to write to as well. They used to write to me on, who is it? The bogeyman, like bogeyman paper. Right, yes. <laughs> Fungus the bogeyman. Did you, yeah, because did you did you connect to that Leeds goth scene at all? You know, that, that was kind of so sort of prevalent at that time because you had obviously you had um, Soft Cell and Mark Armand and Annie Hogan, but then you had, you know, yeah, the Sisters of Mercy and... Yeah, all those bands like, I don't know, Cassandra, the Cassandra Complex, wasn't it? I think that's the Leeds band. I think but... for me it was, um, again, writing to fanzine people. I was ordering a lot of fanzines and I ordered Mark Webber's. Mark Webber, who later was in Pulp, he was doing his own fanzine. And he did this cassette called Oozing Through the Ozone Layer. and. I think it was one or two cassettes with some printed A3 sheets. No, sorry, A, you know, like half of A4 sheets with um, drawings and, yeah, different things about music. And there was this band on there that I really love called Magic Roundabout. And oh, yes. they were from Nottingham. And there was this track called Sneaky Feeling and I really loved and Waterfall. I think and and on that cassette there was television personalities spaceman three and yeah I mean it wasn't really goth but it, somehow the goth thing did enter maybe it's from liking Depeche Mode or something and you know a lot of people wearing black or the Mary chain I was a yes. big fan of the Mary chain but somewhere along the way I was the kind of goth that was really into C86 stuff. There was this real weird dichotomy that I don't think many people had that crossover, but I was just like a sponge, you know, soaking up different music. And I wasn't a snob. I wasn't embarrassed if I liked, you know, the Sisters of Mercy and the Birds and 14 Ice Bears or whatever it, you know, it was quite odd, I suppose. But, um, but there must have been something that also crossed over. 
because yes. people say to me now when you work with bands do you feel like your label has an identity and I always say if I did a pie chart with all the circles of all the different bands like instrumental loud guitars space rock there'd be a tiny bit that would cross over somewhere in the middle yes whether it's shoegaze or you know electronic or loud noisy guitars there's something that crosses over there Yes. That I can't really put my finger on, but it's something. And there was a journalist in France once that made a comment that I'll never forget. He said, do you think you like drone music because you're Indian? And I, I kind of looked at him like I didn't understand what he was saying. And he was saying because of all the sitars and that background of, you know, certain style of Indian music maybe that's why I was really into all that drone and space rock that came later mm. yeah that's did you discover or you know did you enter the world of John Peel and those kind of his oh his uh, kind of... yes I have many cassettes with the festive 50s recorded god we love that so, <laughs> yeah I miss him dearly he he's supported me from day one we sent him our first release on the first label when I moved to London I became a part of Cherie Records and later it became Shay and then I set up Rocket Girl and we sent him the first telescope seven inch which was the first we did a you know a number of flexi discs but the first telescope single Kick the Wall was the first vinyl we pressed and he played it and he read out our P.O. box address and we got about 100 orders there was a postal strike at the time and I remember going to the P.O. box and there was about 100 letters, you know, with 50 pence in them or checks yes. or postal orders. Did people used um, to take the pen, uh, the money to a bit of cardboard and sort of wrap it up. To, exactly. To... Yeah, it's classic. I know. I used to do that myself. <laughs> so there you go. It was fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah, I know John Peel was kind of the, the I, uh, me, me too. And, um, yeah, in that way that. He was my kind of, uh, you know, like, yeah, barometer, I suppose you'd call it. But if he played it, I would be like, oh, that's interesting. And and then, you know, so I became obsessed with indie pop and then thrash metal and then, you know, Bulgarian folk music or the Bundu Boys or Gregory Isaacs, oh, yes. or, you know, or early hip hop with DJ Cheese that he loved and and all those T. Rock and Roxy Chante. And I went, oh, yeah, my God, that's amazing. So I was all, I went just completely, just basically anything he played. So I've got all those not all a lot of those John Peel cassettes that I don't know what to do with but I reluctant yeah. to throw them because it was just like even if I didn't like it I kind of felt that he went and listened to all the best of that genre and went I think this is the best one of that and then I think this is the best one of that and it was like oh brilliant thanks John that's great you know so I kind of lent on him heavily and then so like I don't know really who to listen to. So it's a bit unfortunate now. He was so diverse. That's what I loved about him. He introduced so many bands. And my friend actually, he his family still live on Peel Road in London. And he used to bring records back for John Peel. John Peel would ask him to bring records from India. And he always remembered him because he lived on Peel Road. And you know, he, he played anything and everything. Like, he wasn't a snob. And there's never going to be anyone like him again. He was so unique and such a music lover, so passionate. 
And the Peel Sessions, obviously, was a massive thing as well. Yes, I know. Thank God for Precious Recordings of London. They're putting some out. But so then, so as we trundled from the, the indie world and then there was at the ecstasy period of dance music and then the Seattle grunge scene and shoegazing, how did you navigate that kind of you know, period into the 90s? Yeah, so by then I'd moved to London and I was putting out a lot of records. So early 90s was probably... Disco Inferno, Telescopes, Bark Psychosis, Whipping Boy. Um, they're so the did, kind of bands. So did you start a record label? This is the million dollar quote. Did you? Yeah. So how did that kind of um, that bit happen? So when I was writing to all these fanzines, one of the fanzines I was writing to was Sowing Seeds fanzine in London. And it was run by Nick Allport and Paul May. And I think Paul had had a punk fanzine before that. So I used to write to them and we'd swap cassettes. So Nick and I were swapping cassettes pretty much every week. And when I came to London, I asked if I could stay with them. I got a job in London, the first job I went for. And I just said to my parents, I'm going to move to London. And they said, you can't just get a job and move to London. But actually, I did. The first job I applied for, I had a second interview after being up all night with the sea urchins and the poo sticks in Birmingham, I got the train back to London, had my second interview, and they offered me the job. So I asked Nick and Paul if I could stay at their flat for a couple of weeks while I found a place, and I found my own place. And they were doing this fanzine, sowing seeds, and I think they'd got up to issue five by then, five or six. And they decided to do a flexi, so they did a loop flexi with a telescopes track on it. And they decided that it was just a lot of hassle to finish the fanzine. So loop were playing on New Year's Eve, so it's 31st of December 1988. And we each took a handful of flexis, they were so easy to carry. And we were just going round, everyone was drunk, it was New Year's saying, would you like a loop flexi? And there were 50 pence each and they just sold out. And then we had more at the flat that we took into Rhythm Records. And um, I'm trying to think there was a shop on Hanway Street, a little indie shop there. And we just used to go into the record shops and say, can we leave 10 of these with you? And we'll pick up the money next week if they sell. Yes. And then when um, when that did really well, they kind of the fanzine kind of fizzled out. But we really like this idea of doing some flexies and seven inches. So weirdly, Nick had been writing to the telescopes for a long time. And I'd been writing to the telescopes because Stephen from the telescopes also had a fanzine. So we both knew the telescopes and we did a seven inch with them. And then I said to them, you know, I can approach a few bands and maybe I can get some flexies that we can put out. And so when I used to write to bands, I used to say, if I had a record label, I'd put your records out, you know, not thinking anything of it. Yes. And then when I moved to London, I did write to the bands and I said to the Poo Sticks, can, you know, can you give us a track for a flexi? And then we did a Poo Sticks flexi, which I think was Cherie 3 so we called the label Cherie after yes. the suicide song from the first album yes 
And then I asked Spaceman 3, I said, hey, would you mind if we put out a flexi? And it kind of just grew from there. So that record label, you know, it just kind of happened. It was just really a hobby that grew. And um, before we we knew it, we had a record label. So at that time, I was going to so many gigs. A lot of it was the Mary Chain and the telescopes and Loop and all that kind of music. And then I was never really into the Riot Girls scene. I don't really remember going to all those bands at the time, but I was very much into going to My Bloody Valentine when they played at Tufnell Park Dome, for example. I bought a T-shirt from them for £2.50. Excellent. Going to the Falcon, I mean, really, that was my venue in Camden. I was there. I pretty much lived there. I was there, it felt like, three or four times a week. And the white, no, the um, Hampstead. Right. Did you go to the the ambulance station to see any gigs there, which was a squat in... That seemed to be quite famous. I don't know if it was the mid 80s or late 80s, but there seemed to be a connection with a band called the Hangman's Beautiful Daughters or something like that. I remember Hangman's Beautiful Daughter, but I don't, maybe that was before my time because there was the Falcon and then there was the White Horse in Hampstead. There was also the Black Horse near the Falcon that I never went there either. And there was the Powerhouse in Angel. And what else was there at that time? There was rails in Euston for a little while. And then there were the bigger venues, you know, Kentish Town, Town and Country Club. Yes. Which became the forum. But really, we were at the tiny venues all the time. New Cross venue. And Fulham Greyhound was another one we went to a lot. That's where Loop played their New Year's Eve show. Yes. So at that stage, this is where you, yes, you really sort of capture the market of sort of indie bands, including the Bardos as well, don't you? So how did they they come onto your radar? So we were putting out records on Cherie. So by then we signed the Poo Sticks and we were working with the telescopes. We couldn't afford to released their first album so they ended up signing to another label but we continued managing them and then we just started getting quite a few demo tapes at this point and we really liked the Bardos and we met up with John their manager and we went to see them play in Norwich they used to play at at the university in Norwich actually was at UEA University of East Anglia and they would come down to London and also, um, one of them was the brother of the singer of Adorable. Do you remember Adorable? I think they were um, on Creation. Yes. So the singer's brother was the guitarist in the Bardos. So, you know, there was a lot going on in the music scene, but we really we thought there was something really different. And they were very competent musicians. And yeah, we we must have had a demo tape from them and signed them. And at that point, we had backing. Um, I mean, it's a really long story, but Nick and I had some backing from a couple of corrupt businessmen in London. One of them ran a booking agency. The other one had a recording studio. But then when John Peel played the Poo Sticks on his show, Seymour Stein heard it and really liked it. 
And so his assistant called us and said, Seymour Stein wants to have a meeting with you. So we went to meet Seymour in London and he actually funded the label for a while. And so at the time of signing the Bardos, we were getting this funding from Sire in America and they had first refusal of the artists in America. Fantastic. So John was managing the Bardos. And I think around that time we were talking to Seymour and we had the we worked with the Lilies who were from the States. They were on spin art, very 60s influenced. They had a, a Levi's advert, a nanny in Manhattan. That yes. was a really big hit over here. The album wasn't a big hit, but everyone obviously cherry picking tracks all bought the seven inch after seeing the Levi's advert. And we had Yurisayatsura who were from Glasgow. So this was all around that time. And then things went really wrong with this deal and the backers that we were already working with. So we set up Shea Records. We'd already set up Shea Records, actually, to put out some smaller stuff that didn't really fit on the Cherie roster so we could extract it from that. Yes. Commercial way that Cherie was going, not musically commercial, but just the way we were funded. And, you know, getting into bed with a major wasn't really an answer. But how did you find Seymour Stein? Because he's one of the great legends, isn't he? Was he an interesting character? Because I think he was he responsible for signing the Smiths as well, wasn't he, to the American? He signed a lot of the British bands to America. My Bloody Valentine, the Smiths. He signed Madonna as well and Depeche Mode and he took a lot of the music from here to to the States. He was a really sweet, complicated guy. He was clearly passionate about music, which obviously you didn't always get in the major world. And Sire definitely had a lot of really cool acts in the States. And he was very open to finding new music, even till, you know, 10, five, 10 years ago, he was traveling around really unusual places, finding music. The last time I saw him, he was telling me that he discovered some music in some obscure city. I can't remember where it was, but, you know, something that probably John Peel would have played. Yes. You know? <laughs> um, that similar kind of vibe. And, even though, you know, everyone's got a story about Seymour, he was always very supportive of what we were doing. And when these businessmen invested initially in our label, we couldn't work with these businessmen because they basically wiped the overdraft that they secured to take half of our label. So they didn't actually put their hands in their pocket they didn't invest in our record label all they did was secure a bank loan and when the money the first payment came in from sire they wiped the overdraft which was ten thousand pounds which left us short on the marketing for yes. a lot of these bands we were working with such as the bardos and Yurisayatsura and the lilies and backwater from ireland and a number of bands we were working with and really it just went horribly wrong and these financial backers always treated me you know 
how can I put it? They would tell me to go make the tea or the coffee. If we had meetings, Vinita, go and make the tea, go and make the coffee. And back then I was so painfully shy that I would just go and do it. But here in my heart, I'd be so upset that they're, you know, relegating me to making cups of tea and coffee rather than being in a meeting. And so when Seymour was later involved, I never had that from him. You know, Risa was his sidekick and she was lovely. And Seymour always treated treated all of us with utmost respect. And these financial backers just never did. So it was just a different side of the coin to see somebody passionate about music obviously a successful businessman but a genuine person as well you know like it wasn't all about the money it was about the music it was about we set up an office in in New York and it was all taken very very seriously it was um you know but we were very young at the time Looking back, we went through so much so quickly. Yes, absolutely. I do remember doing an interview with, I've done two, I think, with Spaceman 3 or 3. But one of them, you told me about one of their managers who, who seemed to set a tour up just to do with drug deals on, on the tour. And he just, he painted such an amazing picture. So it was a different time, wasn't it, really? It was really a different time. And back then, these labels had huge budgets to wine and dine bands you know they take them out to dinner or take them to grouchos or get them drunk and you know they just had these massive budgets to go and do that at the time yes A&R guys would just you know meet up with bands go to shows they would fly all over places to go and see them as well so when that came that label came to an end was that kind of a heartbreaking moment for you, you know, or was it like, okay, we knew it was coming, we just need to move on quickly? Well, we had to let Cherie go because of these two businessmen that we were involved with. Um, they were making our lives very difficult. The phone bill would be cut off and, you know, they weren't giving us money and then we'd have to pay a reconnection fee. I remember we didn't pay for our mastering, which was done by Porky's. Porky Prime Cut. I don't know if you remember reading on the run out groove of vinyl, a Porky Prime yes. Cut. And they used to have this this board. It was called their bastard board. So anybody that hadn't paid them were listed on this board and we were on there, Cherie Records. Because these financial backers just, you know, they controlled the purse strings and they just weren't giving us money to pay the rent, to pay our phone bill, to pay for manufacturing, to pay for mastering. So we turned around and said to Seymour, we can't work with these people. They've just wiped our overdraft. And Seymour understood immediately, like we didn't even have to go into detail. And the backers, these two guys, just said, well, we'll get a couple of kids off the street to run the label as if it was that easy to find a couple of people that could find bands and talent so when when Cherie did go down I mean it was just an end of an era but it was something that had to happen and John who was managing the Bardos he was very good with the legal things so he actually managed to help us buy the rights to a lot of that early Cherie stuff which I still have the rights to because when it went into liquidation, he would go to the liquidators and say, look, 
I'll buy this, 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 this. And of course, the liquidators didn't really understand. <laughs> so John helped us tremendously at the time. But we'd already set up Shea Records because we had this side label that Nick and I were running. So Seymour gave us a bit of pocket money to do a series of singles. So we did the Tinder Sticks Marbles 10-inch and Animals That Swim 10-inch. The Sea Urchins by now had become Delta, so we released their Sugared Up 10-inch. And we were getting single of the week. Things were going really well. And again, Seymour said, well, you guys are obviously finding some good bands. So he started funding us again. Um, you'd think once bitten, twice shy, but he was wonderful. And, you know, he, he really supported us. And then we brought John in, who'd managed the Bardos, to say, look, you can help us with the legal things, accounts. And he said, well, if I'm coming on board, I really want to bring Chris, who runs the studio with me in Norfolk. So Nick and I, um, we we became four people at Shea. So it was us two. And then we took on John and Chris, who was running the studio in Norwich. And and then again, Seymour was funding us for quite some time. But the problem was that things weren't selling as much as we anticipated in the States, maybe over here. And so Seymour wanted a company in the UK to kind of take take care of the UK expenses. So instead of him kind of funding the UK and America, he would pull back a bit. And they were talking to labels in the UK, including um, Coalition. Right. And when we met up with Coalition, they were releasing Sarah Brightman and... I can't even remember who else. And it just wasn't what we were about, you know. And I just felt like everything we believed in was slipping away. And I felt like I could no longer put my hand on my heart and tell bands that, yes, you should sign to us. And that was really difficult. Yeah. So around that time, I left or partially pushed out, really. I just felt like, I wasn't comfortable there anymore. I wasn't really made to feel very comfortable. And I already was thinking about doing a tribute to Spaceman 3 because I was from rugby and I just thought there's so many bands that are influenced by Spaceman 3, but people don't really know Spaceman 3. They know some of the covers. They clearly influenced a lot of bands at that time. So I was writing to lots of bands again, going back to my origins of writing to bands and saying, look, I want to do a Spaceman 3 tribute. Will you, you know, cover a track? Can you send me some music? And it took about a year, actually, to compile that. And it seemed that everyone at Shea at the time wasn't really interested. And I thought, OK, I'm, I can do this on my own. So that's when I set up Rocket Girl. Right. But in the meantime, before that record came out, because it took so long to compile, um, I was a fan of Windy and Carl and also the Silver Apples. And I went to the first Terrastock Festival in Rhode Island, which was run by the Terrascope fanzine people. And I saw loads of amazing bands over that weekend. Again, it was a lot of bands I'd been writing to, whether letters or faxes or email. 
and I just had to go and I booked a train ticket and I had nowhere to stay I didn't know what I was doing I just turned up at this festival and ended up crashing with the promoters I think and met loads of these people I'd been writing to so Azusa Plain, Windy and Carl and this whole space rock scene Bardo Pond, Silver Apples played and so Silver Apples wanted to come to Europe and so I booked a tour for them so what ended up being the first release was a split single with Windy and Carl and Silver Apples because they toured together and I booked this whole tour and I never took any commission it's just something I did because I just loved their music so much so that split single became Rocket Girl One and it was just sold on the tour and then the Spaceman 3 tribute became the second release. So that was the first distributed release on the label. So when did you leave? Um, um, Shay. Shay, where, yes. When did you 1997. leave? 1997. Right. So you got you got virtually into new labour period there, didn't you? You'd lived through Britpop. Yes. You, was that that kind of period, was that very kind of frustrating that you didn't quite ever have the the band or the the song or the album single that kind of lifted it just a bit higher was it yeah always... it was very very frustrating because at that time we really felt like a stepping stone because whipping boy went on to sign to a major label bark psychosis moved on to another label um you know the poo stick signed to another label we did that Tinder Sticks 10-inch and we didn't get to sign the Tinder Sticks. We went to um, see so many bands at that time. We saw McColmont. He was in a band called Thieves and the demo tape was absolutely amazing. And we took Seymour to see them. And actually, he did talk to McColmont about doing some music, I guess, for Sire. Um, I don't know what happened to Thieves, but we saw them a lot and they were amazing. And at the same time around then, we were getting a lot of demo tapes and we got a demo tape from Suede and it was amazing. I mean, we loved it. And they came to our flat in Snaresbrook at the time and we met up with them a couple of times in in our flat and we went to see them play and they said, look, we'll give you two singles, but we won't give you an album. If the singles do well, then we'll do an album with you. But these backers at the time, they said, no, we can't do two singles. We have to have an album on the contract. And we were saying, but, you know, if the singles go well, we'll get the album. So we ended up losing them. Oh you know, and this this kind of thing happened quite frequently. We took Seymour to see PJ Harvey. We took Seymour to see the Tindersticks. Um, there were quite a few bands that did do really well, but we never quite got the band that we wanted. You know, we we kept losing, losing out. And this has been a consistent part of my life, even through Rocket Girl, trying to sign bands and then they're going to a bigger label that I just couldn't compete with, really. Yes, God. And Britpop, you know, I mean... You know, I was an 80s indie kid, and but you know, Britpop did have moments. You thought this is, you know, quite an interesting scene, and it, 
you know, grew into that kind of the John Major years into, you know, New Labour before it all, like with every band, it all goes wrong in about the third album time when they've been together five years. But there was a kind of excitement and, you know, I just, yeah, yeah. but you were there, you know, seeing it all happening every week on in the Melody Maker and NME and, yes, the face unloaded, I suppose, wasn't it? Well, not so much. But yes, God, that was something. Select. Select. Oh, Vox, yes. Vox. Yeah, classic, classic. You know, I mean, suddenly Q just looked like for old people, didn't it? When, yeah. when <laughs> so Rocket Girl, so that came out of kind of necessity, really. Yeah, I think I hadn't been planning to leave and set up my own label. I think when we were at Cherie and Shay, we used to buy a lot of records directly from bands and distributors. So we had this whole other world of mail order that was bringing in money so at that time when I was feeling pushed or you know time to leave the whole Shay family one of the things that was suggested was that I buy all the mail order stock and set up an amazing web shop well I never got help with the web shop but I did buy all the stock and when people were pre-ordering the Spaceman 3 tribute the money was still going to the Shay credit card um because I didn't have that facility. So people were paying by credit card and the money was going to Shay. And so John was saying to me, you know, we we can take the money for you and then we'll give you the money. But I owed them money for all the stock that I was buying. And actually a lot of it in hindsight was very dead stock. But a lot of that space rock, you know, CD time, I did really well at the Terra Stock festival because we brought the terror stock to london at yulu and i was very much involved with that and i had a stall and i sold a lot of cds um from that old mail order stock so a lot of the things like stars of the lid le bradford all that cranky stuff fuchsia that all sold really well um but i'm still stuck with a lot of dregs seven inches cds because it was a sheer quantity it wasn't you know maybe buying a couple of cds it might be that we had 20 of each to sell and so i still have a lot sitting in a you know in a record what i call my record room and <laughs> cds aren't really selling now but you know i'm sure i made the money back for everything i invested um you know just buying all that stock so rocket girl was set up you know it was a necessity to have another outlet but initially it was maybe just going to be a kind of mail order shop because we were so successful I'm thinking you know we sold all the early Mogwai singles that first accident um that first broadcast single accidentals I bought 50 from the distributor and Nick at Shea also bought 50, not knowing that I'd bought 50. And we sold all 100 very quickly. And at this time, there was the XFM station had started, but it wasn't the XFM that we know today. It was a really amazing indie radio station where they would play all those seven inches from the 90s, all those small labels that were around, Static Caravan, um, well, it's a jukebox, you know, Japanese labels. They would play all those seven inches that I was carrying on my mail order. Yes. And 
there was an actual correlation between what was being played on the radio and what I was selling, which was quite crazy because people knew they could find those kind of records from me. So at one point, I guess it was prior to Amazon and all the online shops that we have now, we did a newsletter that went out to 12,000 people. So whenever we did a newsletter, we put a list of all our stock not only our releases, but all the mail order stock at the back. And then the next month would be crazy just shipping orders to people. So that was a massive part of what we did back then as well. Yes. A lot so, of obscure seven inches from America as well. Yes. So is it the case then that you're releasing both new material and reissued material that's been that you've acquired? Yeah. So I guess what I did with all the early stuff is I made it available digitally. A lot of the early Cherie Records releases, such as Whipping Boy and the Sea Urchins, and now, you know, the Bardo's albums, bit by bit, I've made them available digitally so people can still find them. There's probably still some gaps there. Yes. That, um, I don't know why. <laughs> um, maybe, again, not knowing about ownership and things, which is often an issue and I don't really want to get into trouble with any mm -hmm. major labels over anything. Yes, quite. So, yes. Yeah, so so you're... you're. But then are you also... Are people coming to you and you're sort of thinking, right, this is a new band or an old band but making new material? Are you releasing new material as well with Rocket Girl? Yeah, I'm working with, I suppose, a few core bands that I've worked with for a while. I'm not really looking for new artists. I get so many messages from bands and I feel terrible for not answering. But when you're getting 10 emails of a day from people saying I'm in a band, I know you're not looking for new music. There's no time to listen to them. It's really difficult when you're doing everything, you know, from mail order to manufacturing, production, royalty accounts, VAT returns everything really helping book shows bringing bands over so i'm working with peter newton who was in the clan of zymox yeah i've done quite a few albums with him on rocket girl and i'm working with a band from well that when i met them they were in new york they've, they've moved around a lot called white ring and they're completely different they're they they're a witch house um you know, if you want to pigeonhole them, put them into a genre, people call them um, witch house music. And they're amazing. And they're working on a new album at the moment. And I did a Rocket Gold 20th anniversary book a few years ago, which was a book with a seven inch a CD, a flexi, a download. I mean, it, I wanted it to incorporate everything that I've done. So it was very much like a fanzine, but pretty much every format. Yes. with the book as well that is and amazing. a lot of exclusive tracks including Andrew Weatherall one of the last tracks I think that was released before his passing he was always a, you know another John Peel figure really just massively into music would always DJ at Rocket Girl Nights absolutely so if, fantastic so if anybody wants to find information I'll put a link but it is Rocket Girl .co.uk isn't it that's yes. how you how you get it all it's interesting because I was talking to a guy called his name 
James Nice, who does, is it La Kappa School? That label, which is based. Yes. And he was saying that he, you know, he's just a one man, you know, band doing this label, but he just wants to put out, you know, just, I suppose he's got to an age and period in his life of just wanting to do kind of reissues and, I don't know, just keep it steady. He doesn't really want people bringing him new material saying, look, this is as good as I've ever done or new bands. He's just like, no, I've had enough. Actually, I've I've peaked on that front. I'm just going to manage the catalogue and the and the publishing and, and keep it as simple as possible. I can understand why people do that. What I found this year is I'm reissuing my own early releases because the Spaceman 3 tribute came out in 1998 and it hasn't been available since. And I've had loads of people asking for it. So it just came out in May. So it it's um yeah, it's a 25th anniversary repress reissue with a bonus track on it. So we managed to squeeze a Fuchsia track on there. And I just reissued the Yurasayatsura album, We Are Yurasayatsura. Again, hasn't been available for a long time. We sold out of the first pressing on clear vinyl and repressed it on gold vinyl. And I'm now repressing Piano Magic. It's Rocket Girl 19 Artist Rifles. Right. That hasn't been available, I think, since 2000. And a couple of years ago, we did Low Birth Weight, which was um, Rocket Girl 6. So a lot of the really early Rocket Girl vinyl hasn't been available for 15 to 25 years so there's been a lot of demand so vinyl is so big right now I am reissuing a lot of the early catalogue just because people keep asking yes and did you have AR um AR Kane yes have they just also had a a new release that's come out as well so I saw a post from Rudy on Facebook saying that he wanted to make some music available, the original releases. And I approached him and we started talking, going back and forth. And then we had loads of phone calls and Zoom meetings. And really, he was just looking for advice on how to maybe um, bake the original tapes, maybe some advice on mastering And I said, look, I've got a label and we have all these friends in common. I saw them back in the day Um, around that time of working with Bark Psychosis and Disco Inferno. They used to rehearse at their Hark studios in Stratford. So there's all these little crossovers where everybody knows everybody. And I said to Rudy, let's do it. Let's reissue I and 69 and the Up Home EP because they haven't been available for a long time. So that was supposed to come out in summer. Well, it's summer now, but summer solstice. Yes. And the artwork took a long time. The remastering took a while. And we really wanted something special. So Sho Fei, who does a lot of design for Rocket Girl, he helped with the booklet, a big pullout timeline. And basically, we lost our slot in the manufacturing with some delays. And the actual manufacturing of the box is taking quite a while because there were some massive orders. So they managed to squeeze us in now ahead of a massive 40,000 box production for another major label. We just want 500. So we changed the release date to 6 9 
like the album 69 so 6th of september right and it's all in production it's due in the next couple of weeks and rudy's doing a very special show at the social on the 4th of september where he will be playing live doing an interview little q and a session and we're doing it in conjunction with white rabbit publishing because richard millwood whose books are published through White Rabbit, he wrote the Rocket Girl story for Rocket Girl 20. So right. we're bringing it all together as a family, White Rabbit and Rocket Girl together. And we're really excited. I saw A.R. Kane play last year at The Social and it was amazing. It was It was just such a great show and really good energy great music, great DJs. So we're going to do something similar this year to promote the, the book, the box set. Yes, because I did an interview with him during lockdown and it was a hot day. I think he's in Cambridge, isn't he? And there wasn't any there wasn't any kind of mention particular mention of this, but he I think he was beginning to be interested because I think that's why he said yeah I'll do an interview because before then it you know it hadn't been on his radar. So it's all been this this last couple of years, this project. Yeah, I think we talked about almost a year ago I think it was around September last year that we decided we were going to do it so it's taken a long time because for Rudy he had to go through the archives he found the master tapes you know it's just been a long process and we've got a few remixes on there as well Tim Reaper Slow Dive and Rudy's son has done a remix so that's going to be a little digital download with the box set as well. Plus, we're doing a few bundles with T-shirts and badges and very, very special posters as well. Yes. So I... I'm really excited because just to work with somebody like Rudy and A.R. Kane is really a dream come true for me because I, I listened to their records back in the day and it's just weird how things come around, you know, and the rights reverted back to the band again, going back to all that um, old contracts and things. <laughs> yes, interesting. So you're, you know, because the bundles are amazing. You get a lot for it. Do you, is is there just the album or is it, you you know, it just has the deluxe bundle, the super deluxe, the mega deluxe, and then... <laughs> You can buy Rudy for a. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you can if the, for the right price. So there's the standard box set, which is the Up Home EP, the 69 album, the yes. I double album, then a postcard with the download of Up Home and the three remixes, a booklet, and a pull out timeline. And that all comes in a box. Wow. Individually, we might make the vinyl available individually afterwards because a few people have been asking if they can just buy one of the albums or the EP. Yes. So I think there might be a limited run of just the vinyl as well. Because with those those sets, um, are they are you having five hundred of each or do you have a hundred of each? Because there's because it's it sort of it, it's quite um it's it's one for the fans but i would you know that that hopefully at one age well not hopefully but you know one might have a bit more money in life um yes do you are you starting to find people who are going to say yes that's that's always what i've been looking for i'm i'm treating myself to that i mean a lot of people are saying it's not cheap i mean let's be frank um but production i would say manufacturing has doubled almost doubled in the last couple of years it 
production costs are absolutely insane. Yes. Even to make a box is expensive. Then there's a charge to hand pack each item. Literally the hand movement of putting all the contents in a box, there's a charge. Then, you know, it's just since Brexit, we now get taxed on anything. This is being made in Europe. So when the pallet arrives in London, we then get taxed on it because yes. there's no companies to make it here. So it's so expensive. This is the biggest ever project for Rocket Girl or probably in the history of Cherie Shea Rocket Girl. Yes. Putting such a big thing together. So there's 69 posters only. They're going to be screen printed silver on blue. And that's not cheap on really nice paper. So there's only 69 posters because we thought that would be fun after the 69 album. So once they're gone, they're gone. They're all hand numbered. And then there's T-shirts available. But once these initial bundles go out then we won't be able to repress the t-shirt either because it's silver on blue and to make the silver on the t-shirts we need to have a certain run of t-shirts otherwise we can't have the silver we can have white on blue if we do yes. one-off shirts so the, the actual box set is limited to 500 we won't be repressing it once they're gone they're gone there's only so you much know. space you can have under your bed, isn't there, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> God, that, no, I'm impressed. And I think, you know, I mean, to be honest, I mean, now, nowadays you realise the price is like that. I'm, You know, whenever we need anything doing with the house or car, you know, you, you have to say to myself, you know, times, you know, the last time I had something done was 10 years and times have changed a lot. So let's triple that price that you might think it was going to be to something that might be a bit more realistic. So I can understand why, because, you know, let's face it, everything has gone up quite amazingly. So, um, and also, yeah, I mean, that's the market, isn't it? And um, I can see other other specialist labels or publishers are, are bringing things out. And it's in that ballpark, really. It's one, you know, but then, you know, we we sometimes have to go give ourselves a treat. So it's worth it, isn't it? It's art, really. This and it what... does sound amazing. The remastering is just beautiful. I mean, I'm not saying the originals didn't sound good, but technology's changed now. And it really does sound bigger and brighter. You know, when when we've played it on a turntables, both Rudy and I are just so excited that it it does sound amazing. and we're just really happy to get the music out there again. You know, it hasn't been available for a long time. And, you know, before bootlegs make an appearance or, you know, bad quality copies, we just don't want that. You know, music fans want to listen to beautifully produced music and have beautiful artwork to go along with it. So really, it has been a little bit of a no expense spared project and it is quite scary for a small label. but you know 500 is nothing really in the world no no absolutely and um yeah i think it's brilliant and what's kind of in, i don't know if you've noticed it or been sort of aware of it i'm sure you have been but i think when when the, a scene has happened and we just take it for granted thinking it's always going to be like that and then you know suddenly another chapter happens and we get into that we don't have time to really reflect that much on something and then I know it sounds like rose-tinted sunglasses, but then one starts thinking, actually, that was quite a magical period. I haven't really, 
engaged with it since and then going back and I often think back 25 to 30 years is a good time to sort of start to sometimes reanalyze stuff and look at it sort of not critically but just kind of just listen to the stuff again or listen to stuff that you didn't hear the first time and I think that a lot of that C86 indie world and that late 80s early 90s stuff is kind of being reappraised quite a lot at the moment and it seems to be this is the time isn't it before you know 10 years ago probably anybody if you'd had that idea probably everyone would have gone who cares but now it's like no that's a brilliant idea definitely do it yeah I think um I think I'm quite lucky when I I look back at the the time I've had because you know when I moved to London and I was going to shows it was a wonderful time there was so many great bands and I was actually reflecting on this the other day just thinking there was a big group of us that used to pile on the tube go to gigs, go to the Camden Palace to, you know, get another gig in because they'd have bands on at midnight. So you could go to one show, go to Camden Palace, get another show in, get a hot bag of chips to warm up while you waited for the bus for 45 minutes and then a two-hour night bus journey home before getting up for work. And I don't think I appreciated at the time how amazing it was, but maybe it is that rose-tinted spectacles I don't have to wait in the you know in the freezing cold for a bus to get home but you know there was so much good music around the 80s and 90s and you know we used to go and see some bands in tiny venues before they got bigger you know really blessed to have been able yes. to do well, that those posters where there's like two or three bands for 250 and you think oh my god each one of those bands was amazing and we had the wild club the art center in norwich at that i remember 80s. yes and that was just a great place where mostly it was very all john peel kind of bands who'd been had a session and they could kind of guarantee a hundred people but possibly 250 people which would be a sellout for one of their kind of Monday night indie gigs. And and then you look at the, you know, how many bands were on, often three or four for two pounds. And you thought, you know, it was just, we took it for granted. I suppose that's what I sort of was realising. It was hard at that time to think, this is going to be amazing. 30, it, 40 years time, we'll be, you know, blown by it. But It think... was part of the circuit really, wasn't it? I used to go to Harlow Square Club quite a lot because oh, I lived yes. in East London. So, you know, straight on the M11. And they had some amazing nights there, stage diving and people just really into the bands. All our bands played there. You know, it's what we used to call the toilet circuit. It was yes. all the same, you know, Southampton Joiners Arms and Princess you know, which Charlotte. Are, yeah, Princess Charlotte in Leicester and, you know, Sinatra's maybe in Birmingham. Like. And there was, was it the Duchess in Leeds as well? So it was just that. Yeah. But it was a it was a good toilet though, wasn't it? That's the main thing. I think in a way, what it because having you know all these interviews, it was like you know a band's five year narrative, which I've slightly you know made up, I suppose. But you know they have the twelve month honeymoon period. You get a single. John Peel played it. Got the John Peel session with Dale Griffith. The first album got a little tour around the country in your little transit van. Things are going well. Then the sort of second album, not too bad. You know a bit better. Things going a little bit better. And then. Issues started to appear in the band, cracks. And by the third album, it was all a little bit tricky. And that after five years where there's falling out, no money, and and suddenly I hate doing this. And it was like all over. But and then there was that other a new wave of 16 to 18-year-olds would come along and they'd want their new band. And sometimes, you know, they didn't really care about the mighty lemon drops or the primitives. 
who suddenly went, you know, when I did the interviews with them, they said, well, we just stopped because no one came to our shows and no one wanted to write about us anymore. So that was enough for us to call it a day, really. So it's like, oh. I mean, there wasn't, you're right, there wasn't so much longevity with a lot of those bands. But on the other side, there's the bands like My Bloody Valentine that just went quiet for a long time or slow dive even. And then when they come back, they're playing bigger venues than they ever played back in the day. Yes, this is true. I know it's, it is, it is fantastic, but look, but um, yeah. So I guess this is the project that's on your mind 24 seven, but do you have any other projects that are kind of bubbling in the background? Not really. Um, I'm just kind of focusing on a few reissues at the moment and then yeah, this ARK box set. And then after that, we'll see, um, you know, we'll see about getting rid of some of the, the old stock in the um, record room as well. A lot of that mail order stock, I think I need to, you push. know, try and push that a bit, maybe a big sale or something when I've got more time. So with a band know. like the Bardos, who've got those two albums, possibly three, um, that was a long time ago I spoke to Simon, these two weeks. But will they, I mean, they're on digital. Do you ever have any plans or do they have any plans of having a physical copy or do is it the case of like no one's going to be that interested or perhaps they might be? I guess we see what happens because you can get an indication from looking at digital sales if there's demand there. But I don't know. I, I don't really know. It's It's hard to second guess because with that Eurosai Yatsura vinyl you know we did 500 and I never anticipated selling all 500 within literally two weeks they were gone but that's because um, you know we we did sell a lot in Scotland in Glasgow and on mail order I think Graham and I between us through Bandcamp and the Rocket Girl website we sold 200 directly to fans which only left 300. Right. And I think selling directly to shops in Glasgow, record shops in Glasgow, they took maybe another couple of hundred, which didn't leave many for the rest of the UK, let, let alone the rest of the world. So what I'm saying is it's really hard to predict yes, you know, yes. how something will sell. But Eurosci did have a top 40 hit and they did tour a lot and they did a lot of festivals in Europe. And the Bardos at the time, I mean, things kind of, maybe with the second album, things got a little bit lost with the whole Cherie, you know, issue at the time. So mm. I really don't know. If the demand is there, we'll definitely consider. Yeah. It's just interesting because you probably noticed all these all these bands or musicians from that period, the late 80s and early 90s, have been writing their books. And there's even been a few films on the most obscure, obscurest bands. And it's been really popular, you know. And, um, yeah, so you think there is kind of a lot of people who are remembering their time and being interested and new people discovering it as well. So I, it's, it'll be interesting to see if if uh, people go and discover the Bardos, which they should do because they do sound very good. I hope so. Maybe we can get them to play again. That would be nice. They should do. I think they all live in the area, don't they? I think Simon yeah. was desperate to strum a game one day. So, yeah, just for just if, uh, for reissue, I think they would do it, wouldn't they? But there was a lot of, I mean, actually, on just that level, I mean, there was a lot of great little labels who have started putting out other, like there's, is it Cloudbury in New York? And there was 
Optic Nerve Records in Preston. And then there was a German label, wasn't there, as well, who's just finished recently, who've been discovering all these little indie bands and their sort of, I don't know, singles and flexi discs and being putting out albums by them. And I just think that's such a brilliant thing to do. That um, yeah, just archiving, I think, is so brilliant. So we'll hope hope for more anyway. There you go. So look, last question. If you could have whispered something to your 16-year-old self just starting out, what is there anything in particular? I mean, those things that came up over the years, things like always have a contract with bands, you know, but I'm also a little bit of the, if you've got a handshake agreement, it's enough. You know, I like to think that when you're working with people, you invest so much time and energy with them that really you do build this trust and this working relationship together. But there's times when I suppose I've wished I'd had contracts with people as well. But I guess just to say to that 16-year-old, you know, just believe in yourself because if you're really passionate about anything in life and work doesn't really have to be work, you know, I think they say if you find something that you really enjoy in life, then you don't have to work a day. But obviously you do when you're doing things like fat returns and royalty accounts. It's not glamorous at all. Yeah. But I think a lot of it is just really believing in yourself. I think people say, oh, you're so lucky you've got a record label. But you, anybody can do whatever they want. I really believe that. You know, I think if you have a dream, follow it, because mm. you only have this life right now. And... I spend a lot of time doing yoga and meditation. And so I, I do travel to India quite a lot now. And it's nice to have that time to reflect on the music industry, but also to have a break from work. Yes. And I think it's really important to take care of your needs as well, you know, because I burnt out many, many years ago and it's so easily done. So just really stay in touch with yourself and your your true inner guru. We all have an inner guru that we should listen to. So I think maybe just take time out to be quiet sometimes. And I'd say that your gut instinct is usually right. That is such a wise thing to finish with. Yes, I know. That's all good. Yes, no, I, I, I yeah, that's that's a good advice, actually. <laughs> I'll write all that down. And um, no, it's good. I know, yoga. Yeah, it's good. Well, look, thank you ever so much for this. And if you want, I can always, um, when I do, do put this out, which will be very soon, um, I can always send you a link and you can always put it on your website and social media platform sites. I did a, I'll definitely do that. Yeah, it's been brilliant. But thank you for your time. It's been amazing. It's really nice to, um, so on that front of, of purchasing, the one that, oh, now I've lost the page. You had a booklet, didn't you? Was that 20 that you had? Was that called Rocket Girl 20? Rocket Girl 20th anniversary it's 20 years of rocket girl and that's that's a, that's a, yeah oh well I'll, I'll check that out actually it's and that's that. got a flexi a seven inch a cd and a download code so i was trying to cover all formats well, blimey, that it was kind of my honoring my past you know like you mentioned the archiving thing it was just something i needed to do to kind of archive my story and what i've done you know like a lot of people are doing yes musically for me it was you know the story to just share with people really 
Yeah. Yes. No, it's good. Okay. Look, I'll put the link of your website um, on the page as well. So people can hopefully click on it and, but I'll send you a link as well. So you can always use it elsewhere, but look, thank, thank you. you. Best of luck. And yes. It's been hope... lovely taking a trip down memory lane, actually. It's been really nice talking to you. Oh, good. Yes. That's nice. Yeah. Look, and lovely to speak to you as well. Okay. Good luck for the yeah, release. Okay. See you later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And that dear listener I like to wave. Yeah. <laughs> I know that's such a rock and roll ending, isn't it? Anyway, look, that was me in conversation with Benita Joshi, who I might have mispronounced, but never mind. Um, but I'll give you more information in the link below or in the notes. And has since 1997 ran a record label called Rocket Girl. And um, yes, we probably talked about a lot of stuff in the interview, which I won't repeat anyway, but um, do check out her release or their release or her release, really. Uh, in the autumn of ARKane, which does sound amazing. But this has been the C86 Show, David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. You will find me there somewhere, lurking, waving. And all these interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.